Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Also to Apiphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favour you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I'd like to begin by asking a question or two. Who are you? Really? Who am I? If you had just a few words to write the most important thing about yourself, what would you write? How would you define yourself? If you're familiar with the social media website Twitter, you may have seen the short comment attached to some people's Twitter profile. Here's a few examples. Roger Federer, professional tennis player. Tony Abbott, Prime Minister of Australia. Adam Goods, Anjamathana Naranga man playing footy for the Swans. Glenn McGrath, proud father, happy husband, retired cricketer. That's how four well-known people define themselves. By success in sport 
politics, nationality, gender, family. What would you write? What defines you? What is your identity? This little letter to Philemon, uh, which we're going to read, read through today and, and next week, has at its heart the issue of identity. We heard in our recent study through Colossians the incredible new identity uh, that people come to have when they hear the gospel and receive Christ Jesus the Lord. They are no longer who they once were. They are redefined. They are new people in Christ their Lord. Paul's favourite term for this new identity is simply in Christ, which he uses everywhere. A believer's new heavenly identity in Christ is to shape and transform their earthly lives and relationships. That was Paul's emphasis in the last half of Colossians. It's also a main theme of the letter to Philemon in a unique and specific way, as we'll see. As Duncan already mentioned, the two letters, Colossians and Philemon, are in fact intimately linked. There's a fascinating story that connects them. and It's a story that we'll unpack as we go along, but very briefly, it goes like this. Philemon was a Colossian believer who had been saved through the Apostle Paul. And the two men became close friends. In Roman society, wealth and slave ownership went together. And Philemon was a wealthy man and a slave owner. But his slave Onesimus had stolen from him and run away, all the way to the capital, Rome. Somehow Onesimus came in contact with the Apostle Paul, who was imprisoned there but able to receive visitors. And surprise, surprise, Onesimus became a Christian and he too became Paul's friend. Around the same time, another convert of Paul, Epaphras, who planted the Colossian church, had also come to be imprisoned in Rome. And he sent word to Paul about the good health of his home church. And so Paul writes a letter to them to strengthen them in their faith and to remind them of their new identity in Christ, to remind them that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. They don't need anything more because of who Jesus is and who they now are in him. That's our letter to the Colossians, which Duncan's just finished recently preaching through. So Paul has a letter to send to the Colossian church a thousand miles away and he also knows that he must send back Onesimus who is now his Christian brother and friend. He's got to send him back to his master, his rightful master. A master who is also his brother in Christ and dear friend as well. And so Paul writes a second letter, a letter to Philemon to plead for the restoration of his two Christian friends. And he sends both letters by the hand of his faithful postman, Tychicus. And the now repentant runaway, Onesimus, accompanies him on the long journey back 
he must have been feeling more than a little nervous, don't you think? Legally, Philemon had every right to discipline him harshly, very harshly if he chose. So a lot depends on Paul's little letter to Philemon. In the last chapter of Colossians, Paul wrote that he had sent Tychicus uh, to bring this encouraging letter to them and that with him was Onesimus, the runaway slave and thief, who he calls there a faithful and dear brother. It's an amazing story, isn't it? Incredible. Of course, it's more than just a story. It's part of God's word. God's word for us here today at Trinity South Coast. And so we're going to have a little look at this letter today and next week. Today we're just going to, as Duncan said, just look at the first seven verses. Uh, So before we do that, uh, just let me pray briefly. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this little letter to Philemon and for all that it teaches us uh, about you, about a new identity in Christ Uh, We pray that you would open the eyes and ears of our hearts uh, to hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bible, it would be helpful to open it up and and have it in front of you. Um, The letter starts like this. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. These first two verses in typical first century style identify the author or authors and the recipients. In those days, they got that sorted out right from the word go, a bit like today's emails. So the author is Paul, but he includes Timothy who apparently knows Philemon as well, since Paul calls him our dear friend. In the Colossian letter and in most of Paul's letters, he introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. But in stark contrast, here in Philemon, you'll notice there he begins with Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Though chained to a Roman guard, Paul sees himself as chained to Christ, And for Christ, he seems to have changed his Twitter profile definition, for this letter at least. He's defining himself by his relationship to Christ, not Rome. His reasons for doing this, particularly in this letter, will become clearer in our passage next week. The three named recipients here are probably one family, uh, one household, although we can't be certain. Uh, Philemon is the primary recipient, as we'll soon see, but others are included. He's involved in ministry, maybe as a church leader, since Paul calls him a fellow worker. Aphia is probably Philemon's wife uh, and a believer, a sister. Archippus is possibly uh, their son, and he's also in ministry since Paul calls him a fellow soldier. He got a mention too, uh, Archippus did, at the end of the Colossian letter, right at the end, where Paul urged him to fulfil the ministry you have received in the Lord. 
Apparently he was new to the ministry. Uh, perhaps he was a minister in training. Uh, who knows, maybe he was preparing to preach his first sermon to his church. So Paul is writing to this little family whose runaway household slave is now returning. But there's one final inclusion to the list of recipients and it comes as a bit of a surprise. It's a surprise because of the rather personal, sensitive subject that this letter addresses. We learn here in verse 2 that the apparently large home of this very wealthy Philemon is where the Colossian church meets. And the whole church is to be included in this letter. It suggests that this letter was to be read out to the entire gathering, along with the Colossian letter, since they came together. That's certainly surprising to our Western individualistic mindsets, isn't it? Um, But it reflects the strongly corporate nature of the early church, a corporate identity. So the issue between Onesimus and Philemon not only concerned their immediate household, but the entire household of God. Not just their physical family, but their spiritual family. The family of God. And it's this corporate identity that I wanted to focus on today. This mutual connection. This sharing of life together. This family of God. The language of family and community is thick in these verses, uh, these first two verses and the rest of the letter, and not to mention the letter of Colossians and most of the New Testament as well. And I wonder if we can get so used to it that we hardly recognise it. Perhaps we fail to see the enormity of it and to be impacted and changed by it. But just have a quick look uh, again at those first two verses. Look at the family language. Timothy, our brother. Apphia, our sister. Look at the other terms of mutual connection and affection. Philemon is our dear friend and fellow worker. Archippus, our fellow soldier. And then there's the whole church, the assembly or gathering of God's people. So what happened that brought this about? What connected these people? Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor. I want to suggest that together they had been redefined, that they had a new shared identity which overshadowed their earthly identities. But how? What had happened? The answer lies, I think, in the next verse, in verse 3. Follow along with me. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This standard greeting of Paul is found in nearly all of his letters. And it reminds his readers of the basic truths of the gospel and gently urges them to continue clinging to those truths. Again, I wonder if we can be so familiar with these words that we pass over their profound content. Grace and peace. In Colossians 1, Paul wrote that the gospel had come to these people through Epiphras and that they had understood the grace of God in truth. 
They had seen their need of salvation and understood that it can only come as a free, unmerited gift. They had held out their empty hands, so to speak, and received Christ Jesus the Lord. That's what grace is. God's free, lavish gift of his son Jesus, who died and rose again for helpless sinners. For sinners like Philemon, Apphia and Archippus. For sinners like Paul and Timothy. Like me and like all of you. Grace and peace. This receiving of God's gift of grace had brought them peace. Again in Colossians, Paul reminded them that they were once alienated from God, as we had heard in our kids' talk. They had been his enemies with hostile minds and evil deeds, but God had brought peace through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. They now had peace with God. As the kids' song said, the greatest treasure in the whole wide world is peace with God. And since they all received the same grace, the same Christ, they had peace with one another in him. He told them later in Colossians to let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts. They were members of one body, who were called to mutual peace. An important point, given the context of this letter, don't you think? So they had a new shared identity in Christ as members of one body, of one family. They had been redefined by grace and peace in Christ. And the same is true for us. Those of us who have received grace and peace from God, we are a new people with a new identity together, members of one body, the body of Christ, members of one family. Verse 3 tells us that this grace and peace is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's not miss the magnitude of the fact that through our Lord Jesus Christ, God, our mighty creator, our holy and righteous judge, is now God, our perfect, loving Father. That is fantastic, friends. That's utterly amazing. Being redefined by grace and peace from God is to share in God's family. That's what had happened to Philemon and the other Colossian believers in those first two verses, and to Paul and Timothy. Through their shared faith in Jesus, they had come to share in God's family. They were God's people. They had a new identity as brothers and sisters and fellow workers in God's kingdom. The same is true for us here at Trinity South Coast. All of us here who share faith in Jesus share a new identity, an ultimate eternal identity. We are brothers and sisters 
and fellow workers in God's kingdom. We have been redefined together. We are in Christ. We are fellow members of God's family, God's eternal family. Above all else, that is who we are. Those who have been redefined by grace and peace in Christ begin to bear fruit. This new identity in Christ has its effect in lives and relationships, in our lives and relationships. It's the transforming power of the gospel. The gospel produces fruit. It always produces fruit. And it was bearing fruit in the lives of the Colossian believers, including Philemon. In Colossians 1, Paul said exactly that, that the gospel was bearing fruit among them. The fruit he saw in them was their mutual faith in Christ and their love for all God's people. He saw this as evidence of their being partners in this new people, this family of God. Here in this letter, Paul writes something almost identical to what he wrote to the whole church in Colossians, but this time about Philemon alone. Have a look with me at verses 4 and 5. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. We know from all of Paul's letters that he is a praying man. He prays a lot. And evidently every time he prays for Philemon, he thanks God for him. And he wants Philemon to know this. He also wants him to know why, and so he gives two reasons. One of those, the second reason he mentions, is both a cause and an evidence of his being a Christian. He professes faith in the Lord Jesus. Without enduring faith, he has no part in God's family. The other reason Paul thanks God is for Philemon's love for all God's holy people. Now this doesn't refer, by the way, to a special kind of Christian. All God's people are holy, not because of anything in them, but because of the death of Jesus on the cross. Paul made that very clear in Colossians 1.22. Now this love shown by Philemon towards all other believers is the clearest evidence that the gospel is at work in his life. It's evidence of his new identity in Christ. Evidence that he has indeed been redefined. Generous, sacrificial love for other members of God's family is the sure fruit of God's grace and peace at work in a Christian's life. And so Paul encourages Philemon by telling him how thankful to God he is to hear of his love and faith. And he goes on to talk about his love again on a more personal note. Jumping down to verse 7, Paul says, Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. It was Paul who had led Philemon to Christ years earlier. He is clearly thrilled 
to hear of Philemon's love, which is proving such an encouragement to many believers. And no doubt Philemon will be encouraged to hear, to read these words from Paul. So why does Paul focus so much on Philemon's love? We get some idea why in Paul's prayer for Philemon back in verse 6. This verse is a little complex, but it's very important. So let's read it slowly and thoughtfully. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. There's a lot in this verse. The first thing to note is the fact of Philemon's partnership in the faith. You see, his, his love and faith were clear evidence for it. And Paul seems to confirm this by calling him brother in verse 7. He clearly is, as Paul states here, a partner with us in the faith. Philemon shares in a mutual faith, the faith, it says there, with all other believers. That is, faith in Christ, as he said in the previous verse. And Paul prays that Philemon's sharing in this mutual faith might do something more. He prays that it may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Philemon's partnership in the faith has already given him some understanding of the good things he shares with others in Christ. His love for others was proof of that. But Paul here prays that his partnership in the faith may be effective in giving him a deeper understanding. A deeper understanding of every good thing. Of every good thing he shares with other believers for the sake of Christ. So what are these good things we believers share for the sake of Christ? That is, because of who Christ is and what he has done. Well, Paul doesn't elaborate here in this letter on what those good things are, though we already touched on some back in verse 3. But he certainly does elsewhere. And you don't have to go far to learn of some. In fact, only as far as, you guessed it, Paul's letter to the Colossians. And we heard about some of those in the kids' talk today. There Paul tells of the incredibly good things that Christian believers share because of Jesus. And if you and I are trusting Jesus, these are some of the good things we share in. So listen, brothers and sisters, it's pretty amazing. We have received grace and peace. We have an eternal hope stored up for us in heaven. We share in a glorious eternal inheritance in the kingdom of light. We've been rescued from the dominion of darkness and been brought into the kingdom of Jesus. We've been redeemed, set free, had our sins forgiven. We've been reconciled to God. We have peace with God through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. God is now our Father. 
We are holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation, all because of Jesus Christ our Lord. How's that for some good things that we share for the sake of Christ? And there's plenty more where that came from. That was just Colossians chapter 1. Our partnership in the faith enables us, by the Holy Spirit, to understand these good things, to get excited about them. But even these good things can become all the more meaningful to us as our partnership in the faith becomes increasingly effective, to use Paul's terms. Through the word of God and by his spirit, God can and will deepen our understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. So Paul's prayer for Philemon is also Paul's prayer for us. It's God's desire for us. And it should be our prayer for each other here at Trinity South Coast. We who are trusting Christ have a new identity and share in mind-blowingly good things in him. We have been redefined. And our new identity is our most true identity. It's the identity which will define us for all eternity. Every other identity will cease immediately when this temporal earth comes to an end at the return of our Lord Jesus. As the song we sang, the kids' song, they're all going to fade away. Of course, until then, our earthly identities will continue. We all have them. It's part of being human. And it's a good and healthy part. So there's nothing wrong with those Twitter profile definitions I read earlier. We continue to be born, male and female, of a particular nationality. And we live in a particular town or city, state, country. But if, as Christians, we ultimately define ourselves by our gender or our nationality or by our allegiance to town, state or country, we have failed to see our new identity in Christ. Our eternal inheritance in his kingdom is infinitely more glorious than anything here on earth. We continue to be fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, Children, brothers, sisters, etc. But if as Christians our earthly family identity is our ultimate identity, if that is our primary focus, the thing that most defines us, we have failed to see the greater reality to which earthly family points to God's heavenly family, to our new identity in Christ. And that applies to all our relationships, family or otherwise. We continue to play sports and enjoy success in them. But that is not what ultimately defines us, nor do the sport teams we support or our careers. There are endless other identities we can cling to far too tightly, even in the church. We all too easily find our identity in earthly distinctions, in denominations, Anglican, Baptist, 
Church of Christ, and so on. Even in our theological positions, Calvinism, Arminianism, or some other ism. None of these distinctions exist in Christ. We must submit them to him to see that he is far better and receive grace and peace for our sinful, misplaced identities and self-definitions. And finally, the differences in wealth and social status will continue in this world. There will continue to be rich and poor, advantaged and disadvantaged in this fallen world. But if our social status or financial security is the thing that ultimately defines us, we are not finding our security and status in who we are in Christ. We've been redefined. We have a new identity. It's this issue of social status which the letter to Philemon specifically addresses. And today's passage prepares the way for next week, for the rest of the letter. The issue of identity which we've looked at today is critical for what Paul will go on to say to Philemon, to ask of him. Philemon's partnership in the faith has a new partner, Onesimus. The good things Philemon shares for the sake of Christ, he now shares with Onesimus. Philemon's love, Paul said, was for all God's people. That all now includes Onesimus. Philemon has been redefined. So has Onesimus. They both now share a new identity in Christ. Their earthly social identities of master and slave must be submitted to their new identity. They're now brothers in God's family. Their relationship has been redefined. But can they be restored? Can the power of the gospel dissolve even the core social fabric of the Roman Empire, the institution of slavery, at least in this one instance? That's Paul's aim for writing this letter. And we'll consider that next week as we read through the rest of the letter. So to close, I want to finish the way I began, by asking some questions. Have you been redefined by grace and peace in Christ? If so, who are you? What's the most important thing you could write about yourself? If you had a Twitter profile, what would you write? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the things we can learn from Paul's letter to Philemon. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for grace and peace in him. Thank you for the gospel fruit that is clearly evident in so many of the lives of your children here at Trinity South Coast. The obvious fruit of faith in Jesus and deep love for one another.
Thank you for redefining us in Jesus, for giving us a new identity, for making us a church family and bringing us into your family. We do pray that through your word and by your spirit, you would deepen our understanding of all the good things we share for the sake of Christ. Transform our lives, Lord. Restore and renew our relationships for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Steve, I think you'll agree we've just uh, been really fed so well this morning. Thank you for um, bringing that to life for us. Friends, we're just going to have a moment now of just quiet reflection in the light of all of that, and we're going to sing the song you know, in a minute that we learnt at the start, uh, Shine Into Our Nights. Uh, once the song finishes, we'll have a little bit of time and the music will keep playing and that might be a good opportunity for you to fill out perhaps one of the response cards uh, that you ha- had in your leaflet on the way in or just to spend time in quiet reflection on these things. Let's, le- let's use this song uh, as we sing it as really a uh, reflection on and uh, a confession coming out of this great... Uh, word of God that we've heard this morning from Paul's letter to the to Philemon. Uh, we know that we do so often find our identity in other things. We are not what we should be. We haven't sought what we should seek. This is a prayer. This song, a prayer, uh, really, as Steve has uh, spoken to, for us to deepen in our understanding of every good thing that we share in Christ the life that we have in his cross, a prayer that that will deepen into us so that we would live in, out that identity. Let's, let's stand this time. We'll sing this after the song's finished. Feel free to sit down and just have a minute of quiet reflection uh, and uh, you can fill in the cards or pray, whatever you'd like to do. But let's stand and sing Shine Into Our Nights.